Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. Geopolitical realignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change, supply chain disruptions, urbanization, and several other critical global matters envelop the world as India holds the G20 presidency. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology, the economy, and international security in shaping India's future. We would also like to let our listeners know that the Carnegie India's annual flagship event, the Global Technology Summit, is scheduled for December 4th to 6th and will discuss the institutional framework and economic case for digital public infrastructure, as well as design choices and adoption strategies. We will also delve into the use cases of AI given the evolving regulatory landscape and address issues such as skilling and innovation and military applications of AI. I'm your host, Shayud Roy, and this time we are talking about issues relevant to clean transportation in India. In this episode of Interpreting India, we will be looking at some policies in place to promote electric transportation, the merits of point charging versus battery swapping, legal pathways for creating low emission zones, and the viability of electric trucks. With the onset of winter, severe levels of air pollution have re-emerged as a concern in North India. Various factors have been put forth to explain this malaise. Stubble burning in farms, vehicular pollution, and pollution due to the construction sector. But even outside of the winter months, the national capital region maintains poor air quality with AQI over 200. Today, we focus on the issue of clean transportation, which is key to addressing the issue of vehicular pollution. To speak of clean transportation, we must speak of electric passenger and commercial vehicles, low emission zones, etc. Each come with their own set of challenges. Electric vehicle uptake is low in India and hovers at around 2% owing to relatively higher prices, range anxiety, lengthy charging times, lack of standardization of charging points, and lack of charging infrastructure. However, there are concerted efforts to promote electric vehicles and alternative forms of cleaner transportation in India. The auto PLI scheme and Delhi's electric vehicles policy provide incentives that can spur the uptake of electric vehicles. Delhi's EV policy also addresses the issue of scarce charging infrastructure. This appears to have had results since Delhi's electric vehicle sales have risen to 9% in the September to November quarter of 2021 up from around 1% in 2019 to 2020. Nor is price as much of a deterrent as it may initially appear, since high initial costs may be offset from long-term gains of heavy usage, such as low fuel, running, and maintenance costs. To discuss these issues and more, we are joined today by Mr. Amit Bhatt. Mr. Bhatt is the India Managing Director at the International Council on Clean Transportation and has over 20 years of experience in transportation urban development and management. He was previously executive director for integrated transport at World Resources Institute India for 12 years. Prior to the World Resources Institute, he worked with the Urban Mass Transit Company, India's urban leading urban transport consultancy, and with infrastructure leasing and financial services. He has also served as an adjunct faculty member at the School of Planning and Architecture in New Delhi. Mr. Bhatt? Welcome to Interpreting India. Thanks a lot, Sayyid. Very nice uh, that we got a chance to talk a little more about India, about clean transport with some data and numbers. So, yeah, very excited for the conversation. 
I'd like to start with some of your work on battery swapping. Uh, so uh, I'm referring in particular to a co-authored paper with ICCT on battery swapping for electric two-wheelers in India. Uh, could you tell us a bit about your work on this paper and some of the findings of this paper, just to give the audience a sense of? Absolutely. Uh, so I think, as you know, the clean transport journey in India is evolving and electrification is playing and is going to play a much bigger role in this journey. Uh, there are some key questions or issues surrounding it. And one key issue is that if you look at electric vehicle, the bulk of the cost of the vehicles, almost anywhere between 40 to 60%, is the cost of the batteries. So the question then becomes, can we come up with a different business model wherein we can bring down the cost of these vehicles? And one such model is looking at battery swapping. So we did this work uh, a long back and then where we had looked at, uh, in mostly in case of two-wheelers, at what levels the battery swapping makes sense. So at that time, we had seen that most vehicles uh, come up with 100 and 120 kilometer per charge of the vehicle. And so when we did this total cost of ownership analysis, we found that almost in most cases, uh, the battery swapping, uh, especially in the commercial vehicle segment, was already making a lot of sense um, uh, because um, uh, you were really looking at the cost of ownership of this vehicle as well as uh, the, uh, the ease of charging uh, uh, of this vehicle. So we concluded that in many cases, uh, the cost of... So one is that if you have uh, a, a lower range... Uh, mobility, uh, which is mostly in the personal's case, you can do with point charging or you can also do it with battery swapping. Now, what we realize that as your mileage increases, when you reach about 100 odd kilometers per day, point charging does not make sense, uh, at least because there is a lot of opportunity cost which is involved in charging the vehicle. So, in that case, battery swapping becomes much more easier. So for most of the commercial vehicle segment, we realize that because their delivery runs are more than 100 kilometers per day, the battery swapping would make sense. But we also realize that, uh, that uh, in personal spaces where availability of charging is also an issue, I mean, not everyone has access to uh, power or good quality power, parking is an issue, so if you look at all these things, then battery swapping does make a lot of sense for India, especially in the two-wheeler and three-wheeler space because of the ease of the operations as well. So that's something that we came out in that report, which was co-authored with Niti Aayog. Uh, in fact, you do come up with a very specific figure uh, of around 140 kilometers. So like 140 kilometers is the cutoff point uh, at which it makes more sense to have a battery swapping arrangement vis-a-vis uh, point charging. In light of Delhi's uh, sort of uh, space, uh, is there uh, like does this? So what I'm trying to say is, does this figure um, is is it also valid for Delhi or is it uh, valid for all uh, cities across India? So one we found that if you look at the mobility profile of Indian cities, uh, personal usage does not reach that threshold. Uh, so. Triplens of two-wheelers, maybe 20, 25 kilometers 
uh, would be uh, at max in many cities. In fact, in many cities, two wheelers will probably not even cross uh, 100 kilometers of usage per day. Uh, so, so there is this uh, side in terms of personal usage. But then if you look at the delivery companies, uh, which are food delivery or, 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 or uh, delivery of grocery and other uh, parameters, those companies regularly cross this threshold in smaller cities as well. So that's where I think the battery swapping makes a lot of sense. Because if the delivery guy has to wait for a couple of hours to charge the vehicle, then he's losing and business opportunity. So from the opportunity cost perspective, it made a lot of sense uh, to shift to battery shopping. Um, in fact, you make another point, uh, which is quite interesting, uh, which is that swappable batteries uh, reach their end of life earlier than batteries used by a single EV owner. And that is actually a good thing. Um, uh, so could you elaborate on that? Yeah, and the reason is that because we are sweating out the asset, uh, the swappable batteries are used by multiple uh, 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 kind of partners who are using it. So it's not that you have a 100 kilometer, 140 kilometer range, but you are only using it 20, 30 kilometers per day. The rest, 80, 85% or 70% battery never gets used. So obviously, uh, the end of life is very long. But in case of swappable battery, the asset is used regularly, extensively. And that's where the end of life uh, reaches much early compared to, let's say, a single uh, uh, battery without the suitable environment. There is also this thing uh, that uh, we must discuss because we are talking of swappable batteries, which is that the FAME scheme did not cover battery swaps, even though, as your paper demonstrates, it may be better even more so for uh, delivery vehicles and such. Um, do you have... Uh, would you recommend that the fame involve uh, battery swap, uh, uh, battery swapping vehicles, or, or do you think there are certain qualifications that we must ponder if we do? No, absolutely, I think the fame gave subsidies based on the kilowatt hour of the battery which is there with the vehicle, and once you separate the vehicle, the subsidies did not come. And our recommendation was that. The idea is to bring down cost. Now, whether it is with the battery inside the vehicle or battery as a service model, which is, comes in. So our suggestion was that we should definitely have uh, subsidies for these vehicles as well. And one way to do it was maybe try it out a pilot with a battery as a service operator, uh, give that operator uh, the subsidy and let it be passed on to the consumer. So we had a very strong recommendation to consider subsidies, subsidies for uh, uh, battery swapping and we had suggested one way to start this was maybe to do a pilot and see how it goes and then scale it up uh, subsequently uh, in fact your point about the subsidy being based on the battery actually leads me to my next point of discussion and i will uh, come back to this uh, but just to introduce us again uh, to your work on delhi's electric vehicle policy so you had written an article called how delhi is becoming a lighthouse city for electric mobility in india and in it, uh, you point three points uh, that are responsible for the policy being a success. So one is innovation, uh, the second is collaboration, and the third is implementation. Uh, could you briefly uh, uh, help us go through each of these points in turn? No, I think once the dairy policy came in, one of the things that we saw was in the policy was that like, unlike other states, which focused a lot of, uh, the focus on the policy was to attract investment. 
Delhi's push was most more about demand creation. And while, yes, we do need investment because we ultimately also want the electric vehicles to be manufactured. But again, the manufacturing will only pick up pace when there is demand. So I think this was a good innovation that we saw in the policy that the focus was on the innovation. Second uh, part was that uh, unlike other vehicle segment, electric vehicles require an ecosystem change, which means you need to have a power, you need to have charging infrastructure, you need vehicles, you need demand. So it's an ecosystem change. And that ecosystem change cannot come by one agency and one department. And therefore, it is important to bring the transport department, bring the energy department, bring the civil society, bring private sector. A bunch of stakeholders have to come together. And which was very well done in case of Delhi uh, through either the Switch Delhi campaign or some of the other activities uh, which were taken up uh, by the agency. So I think this collaborative approach was very, very uh, interesting and insightful. Uh, And the third part was in terms of implementation. And I think this was very well uh, uh, kind of executed. A bunch of activities were done to focus on implementation, right from creating digital infrastructure where you can kind of track uh, the investment, track the sales. You can also find where the new, where, who are the dealers of this vehicle? Where can I get this vehicle? So a lot of focus was on implementation. And I think that to me is one of the also a critical areas of why Delhi has reached maybe 10 or 15% of new vehicle registration, which we see nowadays uh, because of, uh, of good focus on implementation. So you have talked of how uh, both the transport and power ministry was completely aligned with the Delhi EV policy. Uh, Could you give us some examples of how this came about in practice and what some of the design principles were that mattered in this regard? When Delhi came up with the charging infrastructure tender, uh, the tender actually came through the power department. So, and and then we realized that it, it is actually the energy department in Delhi, which is driving the charging infrastructure conversation, which is very different from some of the other states. So I think that is one. And I think also the single point clearance uh, for charging infrastructure development, which was done by Delhi, also had the transport department and the energy department together. Uh, Similarly, some of the clarifications regarding who can set up the charging infrastructure, um, the tariff for EV charging, so a lot of these activities did require coming together of both the departments. And I think we were very, very pleasantly surprised that uh, how actively the power department in Delhi was engaging in the electrification conversation. So I'd like to come back to that point that we just made about uh, the purchase incentive being a function of the battery capacity instead of, uh, let's say, the vehicle cost. What? Why would that be a rule? Like, what are the benefits or why? Uh, uh, or pros and cons of having it that way? So largely the way it started that since the cost of the vehicle is high, how do you bring down the cost? Then the question was, what makes these vehicles so costly? And therefore the battery was the reason. And therefore, how do you bring down the cost of batteries? Then you subsidize the cost of the battery by giving subsidies in terms of um, uh, the capacity of the battery. So that's how the conversation started. And and it's still there. But what we were looking at is that at least in the smaller form factors where swapping is possible, can we look at a different model altogether is what we were discussing in our paper. So it it does make sense in a way because the battery is the one of the most expensive parts of the EV. 
and it is as of now it is mostly imported like most of its parts are imported and uh, but yes i i see the conflict there um okay uh i would next like to talk about another uh, work of yours uh, which is about uh, the designation of low and zero emission zones so you have done this paper on improving air quality in cities through transport focused low and zero emission zones in which you have examined some legal pathways uh, to get there uh, so can we start off by defining what a low emission zone is and how it differs from a zero emission zone so the idea was that if you have to clean the air you have to also take a lot of action on transport emission and if you have to take like action on transport emission one is how do you then restrict some of the gross polluting vehicle so that uh, the area inside cities or, or or the city as a whole can become a low emission zone so low emission zone is nothing but you are restricting vehicles which you think pollute more and then the zero emission zone is basically area where you have transport vehicles which have zero tailpipe emission so it could be walking cycling or if in case of motor vehicle category it could be a, a electric vehicles or zero tailpipe emission vehicles so that's how we have defined but the rationale was that this kind of push then also helps to accelerate shifting towards cleaner uh, modes of transport the paper discusses five pathways uh, legal pathways to for the implementation of uh, uh, these zones in two of the pathways we actually have the center using the ministry of uh, forest environment environment and climate change uh, it uses the center uses that ministry and uh, it sort of has in one case it relies on creating a special authority that declares the cities that it wants to be uh, lezs and zezs and state governments simply have to obey that and implement and another pathway has the center publish a guidance document simply a guidance document and then it leaves the declaration and development of the lezs or zezs to the state government so are there merits to one over the other and or what use case would each pathway have and when would it be most appropriate absolutely so one of the question that we are trying to answer is that who has the legal authority to create a low emission zone or a zero emission zone and then we found that in fact the authority exists even in the current legislation that national government agencies like ministry of environment forest and climate change uh, or even at a state level can actually create zero emission zone or low emission zone because these are restrictive policy where you are restricting a certain category of vehicle <clears throat> so 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 that was the background and then we realized that in fact the ministry of environment forest and climate change absolutely has authority to execute work around zero emission zone or low emission zone and one way to do it is by them taking lead in creating this zero emission zone or low emission zone or they can also create this guidance which then the states can take uh, to do it so the reason why we looked at these two pathways was uh, that what would be slightly easier to implement a center taking lead in action that happens at state 
or a center guiding states and then the states taking action. So we looked at both the pathways and we found that both the pathways work. There are enough legal provisions. But the big question is, who will take the lead and how do we incentivize the agencies to take lead? To continue on that point, um, is there some sort of uh, precedent to this uh, uh, that we could use uh, to settle this question? So there are a couple of zero emission zones which have been created, uh, which are largely through, uh, which are evolving around uh, tourist places. So, for example, the Taj uh, trapezium uh, zone, low emission zone, where a certain category of vehicles are allowed uh, around Taj Mahal is mostly from tourism perspective and protecting the monument. Similarly, uh, uh, area around the, the Statue of Unity is also a zero emission zone. So we are seeing some of these initiatives happening or Mathiram uh, is also one. So there are, we are seeing some initiatives which are happening, but they are mostly driven from the tourism perspective and the scale is slightly at a smaller scale rather than a city-wide scale which we are seeing in some of the other uh, countries like and cities like london which has ultra low emission zone and so on and so forth so yeah that covers two of the pathways in which the center is the guiding force then we have two additional pathways where the states where it's up to the states uh, so they do not even uh, require consultations with the state pollution control boards. Um, in those pathways, it's the state that can simply go ahead and des- designate zones. They can plan it all out. Uh, could you tell us about, and one of them actually goes through the Central Motor Vehicle Act, as, as you've pointed out. Uh, so again, can we do a similar exercise and sort of list the pros and cons of those two pathways? Absolutely. So one of the things was since the road transport is comes under a concurrent list both center and state governments can frame rules and so we realized that so ministry of environment forests and climate change is one pathways but since the regulation is to do with road transport motor vehicles can the ministry of road transport take lead and absolutely there is a enough legal pathway both at national level as well as central level uh, national level and state level for either the central government through Ministry of Road Transport and Highways taking lead or state governments under the provisions of Motor Vehicles Act taking the lead. Uh, The question we were trying to answer was, because Ministry of Road Transport and uh, and Highway is also a a large ministry and it has a lot of power uh, compared to some of the other ministries. So, so, and that's why we thought, can we also look at this path when absolutely both at national level as well as state level, uh, people, uh, agencies can take lead uh, and implement low emission zone. But the big question that we were trying to answer was, who can most realistically take the conversation forward? Uh, and, and so given that there are multiple pathways available, uh, any of these agencies can take uh, these conversation forward. I would like to now uh, talk of you, some of your work on India's electric trucks. Uh, so this is particularly pertinent under the current circumstances. Um, so uh, before we get into it, uh, if you could elaborate on why are trucks necessary to include in this conversation around vehicle fleet electrification? Because we Absolutely. already have... Uh, uh, 
Yeah. So if you look at the emission, almost 14, 15% of India's greenhouse gas emission comes from transport sector. Within that, 90% is from the road transport sector. So cleaning road transport is very important. And we are seeing a lot of states putting focus on two-wheelers and three-wheelers, electrification, which is absolutely right. But then if you look at the overall emission profile in the road transport space, almost 50% comes from medium and heavy-duty trucks. So unless we are able to clean the trucks, we will not be able to clean the transport. So with that as a background, the question is, how do we start? And we think electrification of trucks is definitely a good opportunity to kind of look at cleaning uh, the road transport sector. And that's what the paper talks about in terms of looking at the possibility of electrifying trucks in India. So uh, you've pointed out to a few impediments to the electrification of trucks. So, for example, one is that there is no fame-like scheme uh, for trucks. Um, another is that the business is highly unorganized. Um, could you elaborate on some of these impediments a little bit? No, absolutely. So unlike two-wheelers, three-wheelers, or even cars, where you can charge the vehicle at home. In fact, some of the recent data from Tata Motors shows that almost 90-95% of the electric car charging happens at home. You can't charge trucks at home because A, the power requirement is very high, large, and then people who are operating these trucks don't have the whereabouts or even the capacity to charge these vehicles at home, which means that these trucks would rely on public charging or some captive charging. And therefore, for trucks to come in, we also need charging infrastructure to come in, at least before the trucks come in, so that the consumer has this peace of mind that if he buys an electric truck, uh, then he or she will get this uh, facility to charge the truck. So charging infrastructure becomes the biggest bottleneck for the initial uptake of truck. And unless we have initial uptake of truck, we will not see scaling up happening for electric trucks in India. The second important thing is that there is also a question on technology uh, compliance. A lot of people probably feel that electrification trucks is not uh, is a question mark given that the farm factors are large. But our analysis shows that electrification of trucks is absolutely possible. We have electrified buses, so there's no reason why we can't electrify trucks. In fact, you've also pointed out to the fact that the business itself is highly unorganized to the extent that one uh, owner might... Uh, like one fleet might only consist of four to five trucks at most. And sometimes uh, the trucks do not carry any uh, luggage on the way back from a delivery. Uh, could you point to how that is like a deterrent for electrification? So what we are seeing, given the current price point, electrification of trucks require sweating out the asset, which means you start using trucks maybe... 270, 280, 200 kilometers per day. Probably in current price point, the electrification, the electric trucks will be cheaper than the conventional truck. But for that to happen, we also need that trucks do run these distances, which means uh, a lot of times we are seeing trucks travel distances, but at the end of it, they have to wait sometimes even two weeks just to unload the vehicles. The loading and loading is a major, major problem. Uh, Trucks are roughly doing two and a half trips per month, not being able to use, uh, the, uh, set out the asset uh, effectively. And that's what we are looking at, that for trucks to make sense, one, we have to use the asset judiciously. We have to sweat out the asset actively. 
And that would require that the overall logistics environment uh, is conducive uh, for this scenario. And, and, and therefore, we had seen that can, at least for electric trucks, we have something called green corridors, where the loading and loading happens much more quicker. These trucks don't wait for longer times uh, for this so that they can run uh, uh, and, and, and bring in the economics of operation to the operator. So uh, I'd like to pivot slightly to some more general questions. Um, so uh, one thing is, uh, I guess it's somewhat related to what we've just discussed, uh, but you've made a point uh, uh, that the high upfront cost of electric buses is being tackled by operating them under a lease model. And this is a this this can transfer over to say electric trucks, for example. Uh, could you tell us about the benefits of such a um, uh, financing system? No, absolutely. And I think one big issue what we are seeing is that, uh, especially in purchase of electric vehicles, uh, the high upfront cost is a big barrier. Uh, and therefore, the question is, why should I pay the entire cost uh, and then have that on my books? And if there are a way, I can actually lease out these vehicles. Uh, and so, so leasing becomes an interesting case example to address this high upfront cost. Um, and it can, one, be uh, the entire vehicle can be leased out. Or in some cases, what we are seeing, there is also a possibility of leasing out the battery. And then if you remove the vehicle, if you remove the battery from the vehicle, the cost comes down dramatically. And then the battery bit can also be leased out and as a battery as a service. So the electrification story promises a lot of business innovations. Uh, some of it we are already seeing. Some of it we will see in the coming years uh, because we think that this is going to fundamentally change the way road transportation works in, in India. To continue with this theme of financing, uh, so uh, there are uh, in uh, general, there are like uh, real problems with electric vehicle financing. Uh, so, for example, uh, there are the, there is a lack of standard practices with regards to uh, giving out loans. Uh, loan periods are short. Uh, the rates are too high, uh, etc. Uh, could you tell us a bit about the state of financing for electric vehicles in India and what we might need to do to address them? Absolutely. So, if you look at generally the overall motor vehicle financing in India, roughly about a quarter of vehicles are purchased outright. Uh, three quarters are being financed. So financing is important uh, given the way vehicles are being purchased in India. Now, what we have seen at is in the car space, the vehicle, electric vehicle finances is at par or as competitive as uh, ICE vehicle financing. But the biggest uptake is happening in two-wheelers and three-wheeler space. That's where it is a problem. One, there is definitely an issue with uh, the risk, both in terms of uh, the human being who is going to buy the vehicle. And again, default rates are much higher in two-wheeler and three-wheeler space. So how do you address default is, is a question. Second is also the technological performance because some of the vehicles that we saw in the earlier years were not so uh, robust so that they can meet the... So there is a question on vehicle as well. And then third is... Uh, and then insurance company then increase up the premium to address these things. So we are seeing some of the states taking lead uh, in coming up with some kind of an interest subvention scheme where they, and Delhi has a policy of 5% interest subvention that brings down the cost. Um, so, so that's what we are seeing. But in the car space, uh, 
electric car financing is as competitive uh, as uh, the financing of an ICE car because there's enough technological demonstration which has happened and the credit worthiness of the person buying is much higher. And that's why we are seeing this happening in the car space. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, if I look at Delhi's uh, EV policies, the, the the state EV fund actually uses tax revenue from pollution uh, taxes and uh, road taxes, congestion taxes, to and uses that revenue to uh, help with uh, some of those uh, other incentives that they are giving out. Absolutely. And I think if you look at some of the environmental compensation cess which is being levied in Delhi for trucks entering Delhi, that money also goes into the uh, the Delhi fund, which is being used. So I think Delhi has really kind of creatively utilized uh, the revenue generation potential and also used it for electrification. This is a very good uh, learning for some of the other states to look at. And also maybe some broader as well. How do you then also uh, promote sustainable transport? by uh, finding money to do it. And, and, and that, I think, is a very, very interesting case to look at. Are there things that you would like to see in uh, the Delhi EV policy 2.0? I personally believe a lot of electrification story in India has been led. Uh, Delhi has kind of changed the conversation of electrification of transport in India, and, and that's good. Uh, I also think that it's time for Delhi to move beyond and look at newer form factors, especially trucks, because I said... Uh, and again, if you look at the particular matter emission from transport, uh, trucks and two-wheelers and three-wheelers are the two largest category of PM 2.5 emission in Delhi. So <clears throat> the two-wheeler, three-wheeler electrification conversation is good, but we have to do something for trucks. And maybe one way to start is Delhi taking lead in electrifying the municipal fleet of trucks. So you have a lot of water tankers, you have garbage disposal trucks, you have road sweeping machine, you have horticulture, you have CND. So if we can start electrifying this municipal fleet, I think Delhi can also kickstart a revolution of sorts on electrifying trucks in India. And that's, to, from my perspective, is, is a very strong hope and belief uh, that we will see in Delhi EV policy 2.0. I'd like to close our discussion on financing with just this question. Uh, so you had mentioned at one point that there needs to be a dialogue between OEMs and NBFCs related to financing. Um, could you elaborate on that a little bit? No, absolutely. And I think one, there is definitely a question mark. Is the vehicle good enough? And that's what the financiers are looking at. Second, they're also looking at is that person who is taking the loan credit worthy enough? Well, that second bit is cuts across vehicle category. So whether it's a two-wheeler electric, you can't change this. But to change the credit worth, uh, the, the, the technological worthiness of an electric vehicle needs a dialogue. Uh, questions like what will happen after, let's say the battery is, uh, reaches end of the life, will the vehicle perform these many kilometers? So to bring, uh, so to make the financier aware of the vehicle of the technological capacity, that can only happen if we have a dialogue. And in fact, for electrification in general to scale up, we have to have a dialogue involving multiple stakeholders because electrification of transport is not a technological change. It's an ecosystem change. And so if there's an ecosystem change, we have to bring multiple people together to take the conversation forward. 
okay. Uh, I think uh, that is most of what I wanted to ask of you at this point. Uh, I would uh, invite you at this point to uh, offer any additional comments or highlight anything that you would like to point out, uh, anything that you would like to discuss further. No, absolutely. And I think so. It was a very good conversation. Uh, my concluding uh, remark would be that the, a lot of people ask, but why electric? And to me, we did this analysis to look at what powertrain technologies can decarbonize India's road transport sector. And we concluded that there are only two technologies. One, the battery electric, the other is hydrogen fuel cell. Now, hydrogen fuel cell is still evolving uh, and we are not sure what use cases will come. And if at all, the use case will be limited. The bulk of it will come through battery electric. So cleaning public transport, cleaning transport India would largely revolve on battery electric. The second question is, are the vehicles clean given India's grid, which is predominantly coal-based? So in the current system, our analysis shows that life cycle emission of a battery electric vehicle in India, cars and two wheelers, is cleaner than internal combustion engine, even with the current grid. But as the grid gets cleaner, these vehicles will get cleaner. So we now know a pathway, and the pathway is generate renewables and use it uh, through battery electric. And that is what we think we should follow. Uh, Mr. Bhatt, uh, thank you very much for this conversation and for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, and uh, we hope to be able to talk to you again soon. No, absolutely. It was my pleasure in talking to you and, and look forward to our continued conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay tuned for our upcoming episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. To stay updated on our research and team, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. For in-depth insights, visit us at carnegieindia.org. See you next time.